0: I know 30 minutes might be very little time for many of you to sit, but you can continue sitting as you're listening to the sutta. It's one of the best ways to be listening to a sutta anyhow. Today we get to the third, Session that we have dedicated to the Mahasatipatana exploration. Again, from the Diganikaya, number twenty-two, long discourses. The oh Lord Buddha's um, today's will be the longest portions. So I'm going to try to go through it. I can't say as quickly as possible because that won't be fair, but I will do my very best. So and uh, I appreciate your uh, patience through it Um, but please um, strive diligently to observing the mind whether any of the hindrances show up. That's where all the action is in your own mind, in your own heart. That's where the Dhamma unfolds. So today we get to the Dhammanupassana section, which is the uh, observation or mindfulness or meditation on the phenomena and their relationships. Sometimes they're called mind objects in English translations, but uh, phenomena would be um, more uh, appropriate, given the uh, nature of what it is that we address in this portion of the Satipatthana. So when we hear the word Dhamma, automatically we think about the teachings, Lord Buddha's teachings. But um, yes, they're part of it, but they're not only that. We have different phenomena, therefore uh, we have the hindrances, we have the aggregates being included, we have the sixth sense spheres or bases showing up. We have the seven factors of awakening, the bhajhangas. We have, including, we have the uh, four noble truths. Um, All of these come under the umbrella of Dhammanupasana. Of course, we always will look at the teachings that are being permeated throughout as they have throughout the course of the rest of the Satipatthanas, but especially when we come to this, this is where it is the culmination of the Satipatthana. The perfection of it, if you will, the most advanced level of applying and really going into the intricacies of how to observe. We started with the body, something so gross, something so tangible. and then we moved into the, well, after we've covered the whole extent of the, uh, of the body, anything to do with the body, including like last week, we did the, with the nine charnel grounds. We did the asubas the repulsive, uh, we did the four great primary elements, we did the in and out breathing, of course, that's how we began, the four postures, etc., uh, etc., cetera, et cetera. and then we moved to feelings observation of feelings, pleasurable, painful, and neutral. And then we went into the cittanupassana, observation of the heart or mind, and seeing how to identify, keeping an eye on the mind itself. So as you see, it's all about the person, your own experiencing of whatever is happening, instead of being carried out. Now with the Dhammanapasana, we are seeing the methodology by which the mind gets to be stolen. The attention goes outward. We are seeing all those other sneaky ambassadors, if you will, that come in, tools of Mara basically, that come in and pull us away from Yoniso Manasikara, which is the wise reflection or attention or radical attention which is everything to do with the practice of satipatthana. Now, from now until you become an arahant. So let's jump in quickly. Um, observation of phenomena and their relationships. So first we start with the hindrances. Again, I'm going to go um, faster than I would normally do uh, to cover it all today. Here, bhikkhus, the bhikkhu is fully attentive, carefully staying with whatever phenomena that he detects are occurring in relation to the five hindrances, along with their relationships, mindful of their impact on the mind. Yoniso Manasikara and ayonisomanasikara. Manasikara, one is called the um, radical attention or wise reflection, the other one is unwise. Most of the time we are dwelling in the unwise category. And um, for us to be able to detect the hindrances, we must be applying yoni sikara. If you narrow down the whole practice down to one single thing, it would not be unfair to state that it all comes down to applying yoni sikara. starting with sila, definitely with samadhi and takes you all the way to Panya. So the three trainings are covered in there. If the mind is placed on the wise reflection, but for that the mind, the person has to know what is Dhamma, what is Adhamma, because the person might be living according to what they think is Dhamma, but they have no idea as to what is what. For that reason the suttas, the original suttas of Lord Buddha in the Pali texts are the source for us to gain an understanding as to what is and what is not. Otherwise, uh, we have nothing other than ayoniso manasikara. Um, So the moment we don't have yoniso manasikara and we have the opposite of it, unwise reflection, it's like having a piece of meat left outside or A piece of cloth or a rope that is drenched in honey and you hang it outside your window well we know what's going to happen you're going to be attracting a lot of bees and flies and insects and other animals well that's what we have normally usually we have a life that's spent with many many such ropes drenched in honey hanging outside and we're getting all the unwanted attention the crowds of distracting things and elements so please bear that in mind as we're going over the um, um the hindrances and how bhikkhus is a bhikkhu fully attentive carefully staying with whatever phenomena that he detects are occurring in relation to the five hindrances along with their relationships mindful of their impact on the mind Here, the Bhikkhu, while closely observing the presence of sensual desire in him, he knows there is sensual desire in me. Also, while closely observing the absence of sensual desire in him, he knows there is no sensual desire in me. Sensual desire here is Kama Chanda, Kama, which is sensuality. Um, And Chanda here is the desire, the desire for sensuality. And earlier, before we sat, I was mentioning how Chanda is important. It is desire. In the Dhamma, we don't have a strong position against desire, per se, because if you don't have desire, you can't even attain Nibbana. However, there needs to be wisdom, like in any aspect of the Dhamma, initially to create that spark the ignition, the instigation of the energy for the person to get up and to start their path on this journey, they must have a level of desire. Now there is uh, the desire for Dhamma, which we call Dhamma Chanda, but normally, usually, what we're uh, more inclined to practice and be guided by is Kama Chanda. Now eventually, like I was mentioning earlier, the raft has to be let go of. You're not going to see an Arahant carrying a raft or a boat over his head. The Eightfold Path carrying it as a separate thing. They have become it. They don't need any boats or rafts. So there's no need for desire. So before they even get to those stages, the lofty stages, they have to have relinquished the desire. But it has already done its marvels. It's, it's done its wonderful work. Uh, but this is not that desire. So, just to, in case you're wondering about the presence of a desire, the Bhikkhu also knows and understands the manner in which unarisen sensual desire does arise in him. He knows and understands the manner in which the already arisen des- uh, sensual desire is abandoned in him. And he knows and understands how the continuous abandoning of sensual desire in him eliminates the possibility for it. To arise again in the future. Some of you might notice here the pattern. Often we don't need to look at the contents. Just looking at the patterns can say so much as to what's going on. If you recall, even from the Kayanupasana, when we were talking about the in and out breathing, It came to a point where the person, the meditator, has to observe the beginning point of the in-breath, the middle, and then the end. Similarly, for the exhale, the out-breath, the beginning, the middle, and the end. Here, you're seeing also the same thing. The meditator is observing the unarisen sensual desire. Unarisen, the one that is about to start. And you're just very carefully, like a doorman, standing there, waiting, observing. And that is what we mentioned about the Yoni Somanasikara, the wise, the radical attention, which has to be there. Now, if you just remember that, so you see it's the same theme carried over the awareness, the mindfulness, the unwillingness to let go of what is happening, uh, let go of observing that is what is happening that is the thing which is allowing you to see the beginning point and the vanishing point like we were talking about last week and similarly the moment we see the arising if we're there to see the arising we're also going to see its cessation so this that is enough Basically, if the person practices this, or even the Kaya you don't even have to do the rest. <laughs> so don't think that in order for you to be practicing proper Satipatthana, you have to cover all of them. No, you don't. They permeate into each other, yes, but if you just practice only one portion of it, the beginning part, observing, the middle observing, the end observing, you you did it. And turning that into a habit. So uh, a few words about hindrances. Hindrances are qualities of the mind that simply hinder. They're not just passing thoughts, because sometimes you're going to have thoughts, especially when you are uh, meditating, when you're sitting, when you are practicing the jhanas, for example. You're going to have thoughts come in and out, but because of the purity of your sati, you might be able to see them right there and then, and let go of them instead of being pulled into the papanchas and be lost in thought, proliferation of mental thoughts, etc. However, that doesn't make them into hindrances uh, when it's just a thought. But when it has turned into papanchas, we are talking into full fledged, completely um, a major obstacle, which we call nivarana or a hindrance. That is something that this is addressing, this section of the Satipatthana. It's not just a mere passing of thoughts, uh, wholesome, or in this case, unwholesome. But when we see the amalgamation, the, the coming together of all these different thoughts, and all of a sudden you feel like you're under attack, you're lost. And that's where Sati must be brought back in to see, okay, what's happening? And then you apply right effort, to see it, okay, this is what's happening and you slowly, slowly pull yourself away instead of being pulled in to it and at the same time being pulled out of Samadhi, which the hindrances are um, the enemies of basically, of Samadhi. Um, So now we get to the second hindrance. Um, Here, bhikkhus, the bhikkhu, while closely observing the presence of resistance or aversion in him, he knows there is resistance in me. Also, while closely observing the absence of resistance in him, he knows there is no resistance in me. I intentionally use the word resistance here versus uh, hatred or aversion, um, because um, when people read the word uh, hatred or aversion, they might not realize it, but uh, they they say, well, I don't have hatred because their image of hatred or having hatred in the heart might be a lot grosser, something very um, thick and, and uh, very tangible, um, observable even. Um, but nevertheless, they might have the aversion running amok inside their mind, inside their heart, but still hesitating to call it aversive or aversion or hatred. Resistance captures, the word resistance captures the more, um, for lack of a better word, the, res- the, the spirit of what it is that we're talking about. The energy, the, the flavor of the emotion that is going on inside. And because there is this resistance to what? Resistance to what is taking place in front of my eyes, in my body, in my mind. Why did this hindrance come up? For example, Kama Chanda shows up and now we're trying to tackle that problem. But guess what? We are disliking it. So now there is resistance towards Kama Chanda, the sensual desire. So now we're on the attack. We're not practicing Sati, by the way. It's out the door. It's left the building. So resistance is what now we're engaged in. So we are disliking the situation and we're fighting it with full on aversion, hatred. But it starts with that resistance, and it stays with it all throughout. So long as the person is not realizing what's happening and pulling themselves back into yoni monasikara, the proper attention. What am I doing? What's the quality of my mind? What is my attitude, if you recall? That's always a good question to ask briefly and let go. What is my attitude? Well, first of all, it's all tumultuous. The lake is not placid anymore. The mind is agitated, which completely defeats the purpose of what we're trying to do. So we need to come out of that. Okay, so I'm resisting. Okay, let me just think about Bhante said refuge. Okay, refuge. I'm taking refuge in what? Okay, trusting the process, but I'm at the same time aware of what's happening. Ah. So you see, you're very much engaged Applying wisdom in every aspect and facet of this practice. So also while closely observing the absence of resistance in him, he knows there is no resistance in me. And the uh, same applies. Uh, the bhikkhu also knows and understands manner in which unarisen resistance does arise in him. So the person is able to detect if there's a hindrance come up, let's say kamachanda or even doubt. Um, they anticipate, they're watching carefully to see, okay, but every time time there is doubt arising in me or I detect sensual desire, I know that I'm going to end up hating this feeling. So now they are waiting just like a person, like a cat waiting at doorway. If there's a mouse coming in, you're observing, you're very aware For any arisen resistance that would come up. And the moment it pops its head, guess what? Because of the presence, the commanding presence of Yoniso Manasikara, the attention, suddenly it vanishes. Now, it is a knack, yes. The more we do this, the more we become more uh, able, uh, adapt, of, 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 of seeing what's happening, and the mind becomes used to it, rather than being used to having this resistance or hatefulness or aversion towards what is happening so uh, and then with continuously doing this there is an abandoning of the resistance in him Um, next is here because the bhikkhu while closely observing the presence of drowsiness and boredom usually they're translated as uh, lethargy or torpor or sleepiness uh, laziness Um, if you've ever meditated, you know what boredom is. And the drowsiness as well. And they're very sneaky. These are very powerful uh, hindrances. Because they steal our attention away from what we need to be doing. So the person knows there are uh, drowsiness and boredom in me. Also, while closely observing the absence of these two, the person knows, well, there's no drowsiness or boredom in me. And um, especially though, in the next section here, it says uh, the bhikkhu also knows and understands the manner in which unarisen drowsiness and boredom do arise in him. What are the steps? What are the things that happen that suddenly I find myself drooping? This requires the eye of um, Sati to be there, wide open, observing what happened. What happened before I drooped? I I just lost my attention. What happened? Usually there is the disengagement from the meditation object. Sometimes it's also doubt that shows up. I don't even know if this meditation object is working for me. I don't know why Bonte keeps insisting on practicing this or that. All of these things. And then what happens? The person disengages. Let's go of the object. And then there's a flicker of thought, a memory, something, something. And guess what? We are lost in other things other than what we need to be focused on, anchored on. Whether it's the breath, the body, or metta, feeling it in our hearts, or radiating it to our friend. So, that is usually how it starts, where suddenly we're completely lost in drowsiness, and then you're just like, oh, I must have gone into nirodha samapati or something, cessation of feeling and perception. No, you were just sleeping. You're just dozing off. So you need to be sharp. So one of the best ways is to get up and do some walking meditation if it's really that bad, the drowsiness. Um, So with practice, the bhikkhu is also, uh, uh, he knows and understands the manner in which the already arisen drowsiness and boredom are abandoned in him. And he knows and understands how the continuous abandoning of drowsiness and boredom in him Eliminates the possibility for them to arise again in the future and similarly with the restlessness and worry Uddach Which are the fourth group um, within the hindrances and These will be there with us until we become arahants Especially the restlessness portion So he knows there are there are restlessness and worry in me and after close observation, he knows that they're uh, when they are absent in him. That's another thing which we think that we just keep to have our mouth shut and not say anything or not acknowledge anything when these hindrances are not there. No, they're equally important. One, to be aware of them when they're present, but also to be aware when they are absent. That acclimates us, that acclimates the mind. To say, ah, the silent awareness that I'm in or experiencing now could be, in fact, a way for me to taste, a, to, to get a taste of Nibbana. Most of the time the mind is restless. So it's important for us to also acknowledge when there is no restlessness. The quietude. So, I'm going to jump because it's the same formula as you see uh, happening in each of these hindrances. Here, because the Bhikkhu, while closely observing the presence of skeptical doubt in him, he knows there is skeptical doubt in me. Also, while closely observing the absence of skeptical doubt in him, he knows there is no skeptical doubt in me. The Bhikkhu also knows and understands the manner in which unarisen skeptical doubt does arise in him knows and understands the manner in which the already arisen skeptical doubt is abandoned in him. And he knows and understands how the continuous abandoning of skeptical doubt uh, in him eliminates the possibility for it to arise again in the future. Now, one of the reasons why I have already narrated this sutta word for word uh, after translating it um, and recording it for you is to be uh, give you the the opportunity for you to listen to it so we're highlighting and we're addressing those areas of the sutta so please go over hearing or that's why you also have the pdf reading or hearing listening to the sutta because it's crucial that we do so again and again thus because the bhikkhu lives while being fully attentive and this is the formula we have been seeing from the first uh, Uh, aspect of the Satipatthana. I'm just going to say it once today, so we uh, remember. Uh, While being fully attentive, carefully staying with whatever phenomena that he detects are occurring, along with their relationships, mindful of them in all their transitions, whether they are taking place internally, externally, or both internally and externally. Uh, Further, he is fully attentive to the beginning point of how the hindrances are experienced, Mindful of the point of origin of their transitions and states and how they arise, simply knowing them while they occur. So just seeing the Dhammas in the Dhammas, without adding any tinges of this, a little bit of that, just purely staying with it. Don't add any more concepts. Nothing is required of you other than to observe. Very easily attentive to the vanishing point, the end and he is also fully aware to both the beginning and vanishing points of how hindrances are experienced further he lives realizing that there uh, that here there is in fact this particular hindrance but without being fixated on it yet remaining relaxed by clearly knowing it and perceptively present to it excuse me in this way as he lives secluded withdrawn from all things offered by the world the bhikkhu is fully attentive carefully staying with whatever hindrances that are occurring while remaining attentive to their impact on the mind. This is how the bhikkhu lives fully attentive, carefully staying with whatever phenomenon that he detects are occurring in relation to the five hindrances, along with their relationships, mindful of their impact on the mind. So whether we're talking about the hindrances, now we're going to start with the aggregates, the uh, five aggregates, um, the khandhas whatever it is being observed just observe that without mixing anything else be purely present to it observing it but without getting fixated i was mentioning about restlessness one of the worst things that we can do with restlessness or hindrances is to become fixated on the restlessness it's like fanning the flames you don't want to do that if you've ever had insomnia you can't fall asleep, let's say, in the middle of the night, one of the worst things to do is to force yourself to go to sleep. It's like fanning the flames. So you're gonna be agitating the mind even further. So, uh, no no fixation here. (laughs) So the section on the aggregates. Panchupadana khanda. uh, Upadana uh, is, uh, some of you might know, is clinging. I don't like the word clinging or grasping. It's not as raw as, as it's, it's supposed to be, because we don't cling. Clinging could be very passive. Oh, he clings to mommy, or he clings to this, or we grab. No, we, we, it's a grabbing motion. We grab. We grab on to these five khandhas. Holding on to them for dear life. So that's what the intention here is with Panchupadana, five grabbing kanda aggregates. Here, bhikkhus, the bhikkhu is fully attentive, carefully staying with whatever phenomena that he detects are occurring in relation to the five grabbing aggregates, along with their relationships, mindful of their impact on the mind. And how, bhikkhus, is a bhikkhu fully attentive? carefully staying with whatever phenomena that he detects are occurring in relation to the five grabbing aggregates, along with their relationships, mindful of their impact on the mind. Here, because the bhikkhu, while closely observing a tangible form, knows and understands this is a tangible form. It is in this way that tangible forms arise. Tangible, or it could be visible forms, that's fine. It is in this way that Tangible forms cease and disappear, so you're seeing again observing of the beginning. The middle. And the end the cessation of it until something else shows up. Now it doesn't mean that the thing itself is like a, a shooting star like uh, that that's a, appeared into your you know line of sight that showed up and then was there for a little while and then it disappeared, not necessarily. The sixth sense spaces, and namely, in this case, the eye awareness, is bringing in information about forms, which is tinged, drenched in the desire to hold on to it, be fixated on it, or be disinterested in it. And that usually happens at the tail end of it. That is where the cessation part comes in here, until another form shows up. Something a little bit more enticing, more interesting. And then the attention goes there. So this is basically a description of what a normal uh, person goes through. We're always being like like the ping pong ball, uh, constantly being like ricocheting here and there, constantly. But the mindful person, the person who's practicing the Satipatthana is there, to observe, okay, why did my eyes gravitate towards this object? And then it felt like it's the end of the world if I don't look at it. But suddenly, for whatever reason, I, it dropped its attention and went somewhere else. So I'm looking at something else now. It's completely uh, a wasted opportunity because the mind is not staying with, with the eyes. Similarly, the bhikkhu closely observes feelings, as he knows and understands. This is the second, khanda. The first one was uh, nama rupa, uh, tangible forms, um, observable, I just focused on the eye, for example, because that's how we normally get information in relation to forms, uh, rupa specifically. um, Unless the person is deprived of their eyesight, for example then they need to use the touch, etc. But still, we're dealing with forms. Here, we're talking about the feelings part. Uh, The bhikkhu closely observes feelings as he knows and understands. This is a feeling. It is in this way that feelings arise. It is in this way that feelings cease and disappear. If you notice, we didn't delve into what kind of feeling. This is where you're really doing some surgical uh, procedures with whatever it is that is occurring in front of you. Surgical, because you are penetrating into the five aggregates. You're re- understanding your relationship towards the five grabbing aggregates. So you're now a step prior to uh, becoming more involved, let's say, whether it's a pleasant or painful or unpleasant or you know neutral feeling. You're seeing it, first of all, As feeling. Something that we completely go amiss, it goes amiss, we we don't even see this, because we already are ten steps ahead with, oh this is my feeling and I hate this, why are you doing this? So we're completely lost in the story. So this Satipatthana, especially here with the five aggregates, we're taking Several steps, like rewinding the tape, as it were, to see where does the breakup happen? Where does the disconnect happen between me and my awareness? Because when I was sitting, everything was just like, I was thinking I'm probably going to be an arahant, but now I'm lost. What happened? Well, we grabbed on to the five aggregates. The moment I opened my eyes, that's what happened. So this would be the way to penetrate into what is happening and really uh, meticulously see that. Similarly, the bhikkhu closely observes memories and thoughts or perceptions. Usually they're translated as perceptions because we're talking about the sanya kanda. Uh, memories and thoughts, as he knows and understands, memories and thoughts, uh, this, No, this is, this is a memory. It is in this way that memories and thoughts arise, it is in this way that memories and thoughts cease and disappear. Similarly, oh, first of all. Um, we have just bear in mind just bring to thought, uh, your mind now uh, what we just covered about the hindrances. Hindrances are those things that create uh, that hinder us from our practice. I mentioned earlier, thoughts come and go. Bring that in mind now here with this Sanya portion of the five aggregates. Memories and thoughts will come and go constantly. As you're meditating, they're going to come by your window of awareness and say, hey, I'm here, maybe tap on the window. When you pay attention to that memory, suddenly you're going to be pulled in into a story which turns into papanchas and now I'm lost in hindrances. So, when you are practicing the satipatthana using this, the technique, you're seeing, oh that's a memory. I don't have to buy into it. I don't have to follow it anywhere. Just ignore, continue your practice. But don't just repress or suppress. The memory is there. You need to be cognizant of, oh that's a memory. Not, oh yes, I remember that day. No, 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 you're you're sold. You're gone into the storyline. You bought into it. So, uh, next, uh, similarly, the bhikkhu closely observes habitual tendencies. um, uh, Volitional formations, or sankharas, basically. Uh, That's what we're talking about, which I translate as uh, habitual tendencies. As he knows and understands, this is a habitual tendency. It is in this way that habitual tendencies arise. It is in this way that habitual tendencies cease and disappear. For example, if um, you have issues with jealousy or being ignored or putting yourself down every time you find yourself, um, quote unquote, kicked out of your good sit, What's the language you use to address yourself? Many of us deal with different sankharas uh, pertaining to that experience, uh, feeling like, oh, I'm never, gonna, I'm never gonna amount to anything, or the other one is the uh, imposter syndrome can come in sometimes. Um, um, all these are sankharas. Again, we need to be observing their beginning point, Without becoming fixated on them. And the middle, and then the ending point. Just observing without labeling, without saying, okay, this is the middle point. No, we don't know that. Don't even say this is the ending point, the vanishing point. No, just observe it. No need to label anything. Similarly, the bhikkhu closely observes sense awareness as he knows and understands this is sense awareness. In, it is in this way that sense awareness arises. It is in this way that sense awareness ceases and disappears. And here I'm using the word sense awareness, uh, borrowing from Ajahn Mahabhua's translation, uh, which is a lot more relatable for me. Uh, the Dhamma has to be relatable, uh, guys. Uh, so for me, using the word consciousness, which it has always usually been tr- translated as, doesn't do much. Um, sense awareness I can understand, especially when I'm dealing with the six senses. <laughs> so I'm becoming aware of them. Um, because consciousness could be used in different ways in different contexts. So it can be uh, confusing, to say the least. So hence my uh, usage of the word sense awareness. And the same thing applies here. If I'm hearing something and, let's say, dogs barking in there, Quote unquote, annoying. And I'm saying, I'm fighting with myself with this, especially when I'm sitting to meditate. And I'm fighting. So there's a lot of aversion. I'm completely lost to those. And then something else happens, or I was waiting for a phone call and I see the person of the name, the name of the person who's calling me. And suddenly my heart relaxes. And it's annoying, an annoying ringtone. But what happened? Something completely, and it's still voice, a sound. So the sense awareness came and went. I completely was oblivious of my aversion towards it. Now I'm lost into this situation that a new sense awareness was brought in. The same level of sense awareness, meaning auditory perception came in. So, staying with whatever is happening from beginning to end, in a nutshell, that's what we're being encouraged to do. So I'm going to now jump to the Salayatana, which is the sixth sense fear aspect of the Dhammalupasana. And, uh, by the way, um, there are a series of suttas dedicated specifically in the Sangyutta Nikaya, in the Salayatana Vagga the group of uh, suttas basically uh, where there is in-depth instruction and discourses dedicated to the six senses Um, and uh, so Salayatana Suttas within the Salayatana Vaggas in the Salayatana Sangyutta and that Sangyutta Nikaya for those of you who don't know are the linked or connected discourses Um, um, of Lord Buddha's. Uh, it's, it's pretty massive. Um, so Here, Bhikkhus, this is Lord Buddha's instruction, here, Bhikkhus, the Bhikkhu is fully attentive, carefully staying with whatever phenomenon that he detects are occurring in relation to the six senses, in both their internal and external aspects, along with their relationships, while remaining mindful of their impact on the mind. Internal means your own sensibility of these six senses meaning uh, sometimes we call them the six doors the internal basis is another form of of, uh, describing them meaning um, the ear uh, or the ears the eyes the tongue the nose uh, the body the skin basically uh, to pick up information through our skin and also especially the mind. Here, bhikkhus, the bhikkhu closely observes the eye organ as he knows and understands its relationship to tangible forms that are seen, as well as the fetter or attachment that is produced based on these two coming together. Eyes, forms, and the fetter of attachment. Fetter here is uh, Sangyujana the attachment that feeling of wanting to grab that is produced based on these two coming together he also knows and understands the manner in which the unarisen fetter or attachment does arise in him that wasn't there five seconds ago and suddenly uh, i was hungry let's say and but i didn't have any attachment to anything i was just hungry Suddenly I see a picture of a uh, a delicious looking, uh, very inviting uh, piece of chocolate or pastry or pizza, whatever it may be. Guess what? There is now the attachment to what that would mean for me. He also un- knows and understands the manner in which the unarisen fetter or does arise. So it wasn't there, but the meditator knows it wasn't there, but now it is. And it's so, my awareness is so saturated with this, wanting it. He knows and understands the manner in which the already arisen fetter or attachment is abandoned in him. This is where the person is applying attention to see what's happening and then saying or holding or taking a position in regards to it. Why am I being attached? And that awareness comes because the person is attentive enough to see the processes taking place in front of him. Being able to dissect and using the surgical uh, precision to cut through these different um levels of his uh, uh, morphing awareness of life or consciousness, meaning it's a series of different consciousnesses, plural. The satipatthana allows us to break those into their different parts. So, uh, and he knows and understands how the continuous abandoning of that or attachment in him eliminates the possibility for it to arise again in the future so that's the eye Uh, next we go to the organ and then followed by the nose and uh, the tongue and the body and then the mind so um the formula is the same for each of these for the sake of uh saving time (laughs) um i dislike doing this um but it has to be done if we are supposed to finish it today. Um, but um, okay. Similarly, the bhikkhu closely observes the ear organ. So I'll just briefly go over this, as he knows and understands its relationships, uh, relationship to sounds that are heard, um, as well as the fetter of atta- or attachment that is produced based on these come two coming together. Um, if you notice in the Paticca samapada, uh, when we get to eyes and forms, we are brought, we're bringing in the consciousness, the sense awareness of it. So here, however, the formula is slightly different. So we see eyes and forms, ears and sounds, nose and smells, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We are being presented with what happens to us Uh, past the point of the consciousness, of course, past the point of contact, past the point of feeling. So Lord Buddha's uh, um, mentioning of of these five or six senses is to demonstrate the danger. And how, thanks to you practicing Satipatthana, and uh, especially the Yoniso Manasikara, the wise reflection portion of it, You are seeing how these things that were not there are showing up. You're seeing them, first of all, that, okay, there you are. I see you. And then you're also addressing um, the mind situation when you see how it wasn't there. And that's when it showed up. And if I do this more and more, this is what's happening. And it's abandoned. Well, guess what? you're also practicing the four right efforts. So you see this clearly. And every single one of these, um, especially in this, uh, as we're going over the six senses, um, and Lord Buddha's, uh, every teaching includes within it the four noble truths. And by the same token, as you see here, it also includes the eightfold, Noble Eightfold Path. And specifically, it includes the, even more specifically, if you will, it includes the uh, right effort, sammavayama. So uh, same applies for the nose organ and in relation to uh, smells, odors, Um, similarly with the tongue uh, in relation to tastes and the body with tactile objects and the mind with thoughts and concepts that are being cognized. Um, And this last one is the big one because this is the most most pronounced in our perpetuation of, um, of ignorance in our lives because we are truly slaves to our concepts and thoughts more so than we are to the other senses. And that's why Lord Buddha has dedicated so much of his teaching uh, um, to this, to the mind. <clears throat> if you recall um, the first uh, sutta uh, sayings in the Dhammapada, Lord Buddha says, mind is the forerunner of all states, evil and good. Uh, mind is their maker. Uh, uh, manomaya. Um, so, basically, mind is the one that makes them up. Maya is, is, is a word for uh, deception and um, creating something that's not there. So, as we're doing this, sati is becoming more established, but also it's becoming faster. It's becoming quicker. It's becoming quicker because we need to be rapidly Picking up these bits of information that's coming to our awareness. And as we're applying the six uh, sense spheres, sati, towards them, we need to be cognizant, carefully paying attention to, okay, I wonder what's going to happen now. What's going to come through the doors of my senses? Which one is going to be the most loudest? If it's hearing, just pay attention to your relationship to sound. And this is where we can also bring in especially bahia suttas when Lord Buddha says, bahia, when seeing, just see. When hearing, just hear. Don't add your two cents worth or one cent worth into it. Don't add anything. Don't be fixated. Just it's a sound. Okay, it's a Physical sensation, you're feeling it through your body, feel it, but with awareness. How about the mind? Memories, ah! Thoughts, papanchas, okay, I see you, I see you. And if you can't see those, check the quality of the mind and your heart, meaning, is there agitation in you because of your exposure to this sensation? that agitation says a lot about our relationship, hence we can identify immediately the attachment we have towards this thing being addressed. Because um, and, um, by seeing these six senses at their point of arising, we also see their ceasing, as uh, Lord Buddha mentions in the Sonasutta, from the I believe Anguttara Nikaya. By seeing the rising of these six senses at their point of origin, they dissipate and vanish, which is quite a wonderful thing to uh, to experience. uh, Whenever we actually are doing it, it gives you the sense of, "Wow." I'm in charge of these, you know, my mind, I know where it is. And I'm seeing how it's breaking up in front of my eyes. This is when we see how things come to be. For the meditator, you're seeing it yourself. Instead of being taken away by the current of the Niagara that these senses turn into. Next we get to the seven factors of awakening the bodhjhangas, satta bodhjhangas, or sambhjhangas. And we also have a very uh, juicy, uh, uh, very uh, rich collection of uh, suttas, in, again in the sangyutta uh, nikaya, the connected discourses, under, uh, within the section that's called the uh, Bonjanga uh, sangyuttas. Um, the connected discourses dedicated specifically to the Bhojhangas. Um, My goal is to uh, one day (laughs) um, to go over these suttas as well, uh, but uh, with you as well, especially. Uh, Not all of them because they're massive. There are thousands of suttas just in the connected discourses. Um, So, here, bhikkhus, the bhikkhu is fully attentive, carefully staying with whatever phenomenon that he detects are occurring in relation to the seven factors of awakening, along with their relationships, while remaining mindful of their effect on the mind. Now, here we need to speak, uh, say a few words about the seven factors of awakening, uh, because they are very much related often to the experiencing of jhanas. If you're practicing the seven factors of awakening, of course, they are known to take a person all the way to Nibbana. However, before you get there, (laughs) it's not a physical location. Again, I'm just using these words, Uh, but um, they also contribute tremendously to the experiencing of the jhanas for the meditator. I say this because many people have said, oh, if you practice the satipatthanas, then you, there's no way you can experience the jhanas. Absolute nonsense. Uh, you can, but there are some of the uh, uh, aspects of the satipatthana that don't leave much room for the person to experience any jhanas. For example, if you are practicing the awareness of uh, Uh, the repulsive or if you're uh, applying the nine charnel grounds uh, observations that is so much um, drenched in vipassana It, it is all about insight so the mind is so alert it doesn't leave room for you to go into just pure calm which is samatha so there's a lot of insight that is uh, being experienced by the meditator uh, vis-a-vis those aspects of the satipatthana. However, uh, when you're practicing the breath meditation, etc., uh, you will be uh, um, you have the chance of entering into the jhanas. But here, especially the seven factors of awakening are placed to have both samatha and vipassana occur because lord buddha as mentioned many times in the suttas has the uh, the encouraging words for meditators to be doing both so um again and how uh, okay here bhikkhus, the bhikkhu while closely observing the presence of the mindfulness awakening factor which is sati He knows and understands the mindfulness awakening factor is present in me. Also, while closely observing the absence of mindfulness awakening factor in him, he knows the mindfulness awakening factor is absent in me. The bhikkhu also knows and understands the manner in which the unarisen mindfulness awakening factor can arise in him. He knows and understands the manner in which the already arisen mindfulness awakening factor can continue to grow and be developed to perfection in him. So you see here, this is different than the others where we were doing the four right efforts and uh, where there is the relinquishing, the abandoning of those uh, attachments, let's say, towards a sense awareness. But here, the meditator is being encouraged to practice and bring about sati and continue working on it until it becomes so developed and cultivated that it reaches its perfection and by perfection what is meant here is to get them all nicely uh, uh, reaching that state of fruition where they are now being balanced remember the seesaw i've used as a metaphor of having all of them lined up beautifully. And when they, all, all of them as in seven factors of awakening, the bodjhangas, instead of one being, you know, wobbly or less than the others. So the key thing is to get them all nicely filled up. Think of seven cups of, just cups, being filled up with water. So there's some that are going to be less than. And, um, the mind. I just was reminded of those musicians who use crystal glasses, performers, and they add liquid, um, water or something, and in different proportions in one glass versus the other, and they rub gently around the brim of the glass, and it makes a certain sound, and then you move to another one, and all of a sudden they keep doing it, and you have a different nuances, and melodies, of music playing. The mind loves to do that to keep itself from becoming bored. And, but in case, uh, uh, I don't know if the metaphor works properly but in reference to the bodjhangas, that cannot be, they all have to be filled up perfectly, matching each other in order for the dhamma, uh, dasana to happen, seeing with the dhamma eye, meaning uh, the experience of nibbana take place. So the same formula is now going to be um, laid out for the Dhamma-Vichaya, which are the investigation of states. Similarly, the bhikkhu, while closely observing the presence of the investigation of states awakening factor Dhamma-Vichaya, knows and understands the investigation of states. Uh, uh, the investigation of states awakening factor is present in me. Also, while closely observing the absence of the investigation of states awakening factor in him, he knows the investigation of states awakening factor is absent in me. Now, someone might say, well. Remember, Bhante, when you were saying about the hindrances and practicing of the hindrances. um, Would that be a separate meditation than what we're doing here? No. While the person is aware, oh, where did this drowsiness come from as I was sitting? What they're essentially doing is already applying the first and second of the bojhangas, because it requires sati to detect that the mind is no longer, our awareness is no longer on the object of meditation. If there's no sati, guess what? You won't know until you're you're sleeping. You know it's been seven hours and whatever you're lost. Uh, and it's also the dhamma uh, vichaya or the investigation of state's awakening factor of the Bojangas that allows us to know. Oh. That is sloth and torpor or drowsiness and boredom. Ah. So there is wisdom in this, especially in the second Bojhanga, because we don't have uh, wisdom being listed as a separate Bojhanga in the seven. It is uh, represented in this the second uh, spe- uh, step of the bojhanga, which is the Dhamma Vijaya. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, But none of these two actually will be able to stand up and be present without this third one, meaning vidya, the bhikkhu, while closely observing the presence of the persevering effort, awakening factor, vidya, he knows and understands. The persevering effort, awakening factor is present in me, or when it's absent, he knows that it's absent in him. So, Oftentimes, people put too much vidya, especially in the beginning. We don't put enough energy or persevering effort in the practice. Or we go to the opposite extreme and we put too much of it, which creates agitation. And that's when the teacher is going to slowly, slowly convince you to pull back a little and not be so gung-ho, not be so like, you know, Uh, full steam ahead or you know no pull back pull back and as i've mentioned in several talks uh, here and elsewhere in regards to these seven factors of awakening it's important for us to divide them into two groups one is the energizing group and the other one is the tranquilizing group the first three uh, not sati included, but uh, when we get to PT which is next, the joy factor, um, are considered the energizing group. When the mind is becoming sluggish, weak, drowsy, bored, disinterested, that's when we bring these three up. Okay, the Dhamma Vijaya. Because that creates energy also, the mind gets agitated, because you're doing investigation, the second is vidya, and the third was piti, the joy. Now the tranquilizing aspects uh, aspect has the other three, pasadhi, which is uh, tranquility of mind, samadhi, which is the collectedness, coming together of the mind, stability of the mind, and finally upekka, the equanimity. Those are the reasons why, basically, uh, why we say they're like a seesaw. They need to reach a state of balancing. And to keep an eye on all of these six is the manager, if you will. The foreman, the one in charge, without which none of these can become successful. And that is sati. So there you go. You have the seven factors of awakening. Excuse me. Um, so, I mentioned <clears throat> the joy factor. So, similarly, again, though, uh, the bhikkhu while closely observing the presence of joy awakening factor. And the next is the prasadhi, uh, tranquility of mind <clears throat> awakening factor, and samadhi, and then upekka. It is important for us to observe these uh, when they are present. It is equally important for us to observe their absence throughout our meditation progress throughout our meditation sits so please do not think that these are things that you will get to once you graduate some level and get to another level and then you can go ahead and have permission to No, every sitting is an opportunity for us to see all of these Satipatthana aspects, okay? The six senses, the four elements, the repulsiveness of um, things, of the body, etc. The five aggregates, all of these things, all of these things are different ways to establish mindfulness in us. It doesn't matter for us to do all of them. Um, Just one of them would do perfectly fine. So uh, next and finally, uh, the big chunk of (laughs) the Mahasatipatthana is here. (laughs) Um, And that is the section on the... Arya as, or the truths, uh, the Four Noble Truths, that is. Here, bhikkhus, the bhikkhu is fully attentive, carefully staying with whatever phenomena that he detects are occurring in relation to the Four Noble Truths, while remaining mindful of their effect on the mind. Exposition on the Truth of Suffering, Dukkha. And what bhikkhus is the Noble Truth of Suffering? Rebirth is suffering. Some people translate it as just birth. Um, But if you're being born, as far as the Dhamma is concerned, it is rebirth. Um, So rebirth is suffering. Getting sick is suffering. Aging and getting old is suffering. Death is suffering. Grief, lamentation, pain, depression, and a sense of loss are all suffering. Associating with whatever is disagreeable or disliked is suffering. Separating from what one likes is suffering. Not getting what one likes is also suffering. In other words, all that the five grabbing aggregates try to latch onto is suffering. And what because is rebirth? What? For the numerous and diverse beings in the various classes and realms of existence is considered to be birth, whether in the form of descent into an egg or being conceived in a womb the arising and appearance into that world where the respective aggregates come together, forming the person along with the appropriate senses to experience the objects that are to be cognized in that specific realm, this is what is called rebirth. And uh, I tried to make the translation to be as uh, all encompassing as possible to uh, capture what is being said in the Pali. So um, it's self-explanatory, so uh, being uh, conceived in an egg, uh, in a womb, or the arising and appearing in the, the other world, it's also depicting the animal, human deva worlds also. Um, and in the deva worlds, there is no womb to be born into, or an egg we appear into those realms. Um, I'm just plucking one or two things to mention about that and what because is getting sick aging and getting old what for the numerous and diverse beings in the various classes and realms of existence is considered becoming sick aging and getting old whether through the decaying of the body the loss of teeth having gray hair becoming wrinkled the loss of vitality as well as the breakdown in mental faculties this is what is called getting sick aging and getting old um yeah so but so so long as the person is alive and you still have a a breath a single breath left in your lungs you can still practice the dhamma that's what i would like to say about that and what because is death what for the numerous and diverse beings in the various classes and realms of existence is considered to be deceased and no more the breakup of the body and all faculties the dismantling of the aggregates, the giving up and laying down of the corpse. This is what is called death. And what bhikkhus is grief? When because someone experiences sadness as a result of some misfortune, feeling inner sorrow while being touched by various forms and causes for dukkha to arise in one's life, the state of mourning, the inner heavy grief. This is what is called grief. And what bhikkhus is lamentation? When, because someone cries as a result of some misfortune, sobbing, feeling the, the tears welling up inside, while being touched by various forms and causes for dukkha to arise in one's life, the state of weeping and wailing, this is what is called lamentation. And what because is pain? When, because someone experiences bodily pain, feeling any of the many kinds of physical discomfort, the experience of suffering and aches of all kinds that plague the body on account of physical contact. This is what is called pain. And what because is depression? When because someone experiences the mental and emotional pain, feeling any of the many kinds of mental and emotional discomfort, the experience of suffering that plague the mind on account of thoughts and mental contact, this is what is called depression. And what bhikkhus is the sense of loss. When because someone is in despair as a result of some misfortune, in misery, experiencing much agony and heartache, while being touched by various forms and causes for dukkha to arise in one's life, this suffering is what is called the sense of loss. And what bhikkhus is meant by associating with whatever dis- is disagreeable or disliked as suffering. When because you find yourselves being surrounded by disagreeable sights, sounds, odors, flavors, objects to touch, and any mental phenomena that are seen as displeasing, disliked, not enjoyable, unwanted, aggravating, and punishing to the senses, <clears throat> or when you find yourself in the company of those who are harming or injuring you, or want to threaten, harm, and damage you, coming in contact with such situations and conditions. This is what is meant by associating with whatever is disagreeable or disliked as suffering. And what because is meant by separating from what one likes as suffering, is suffering, when because you find yourselves being separated from agreeable sights, sounds, odors, flavors, objects to touch, and any mental phenomena that are seen as pleasing, liked, enjoyable, wanted, satisfying, and delightful to the senses. Or when you find yourself severed from being in the company of those who are beneficial and loving towards you, those who want your welfare, those who want to see you liberated and free from all attachments. Not being in contact with such caring and benevolent individuals, situations, and conditions anymore, this is what is meant by separating from what one likes is suffering. And what bhikkhus is meant by not getting what one likes is also suffering. When bhikkhus, in all beings that are subject to rebirth, there arises the wish. Oh, may there not be any more rebirths for us. Oh, if only we don't get to be reborn again. But bhikkhus, such a wish is not attainable merely by desiring or wishing for it to happen. This is what is meant by not getting what one likes is also suffering. Similarly, bhikkhus, in all beings that are subject to aging and getting old, there arises the wish, oh may we not age or get old, oh if only we don't age or get old. But bhikkhus, such a wish is not attainable merely by desiring or wishing for it to happen. This is what is meant by not getting what one likes is also suffering. Similarly, in all beings that are subject to getting sick, there arises the wish, Oh, may we not get sick. Um, and uh, the next is uh, in regards to death. Similarly, because in all beings that are subject to death, there arises the wish. Oh, may, we, may the day never come for us to die. Oh, if only we don't get to die. And Lord Buddha says, but because such a wish is not attainable merely by desiring or wishing for it to happen. This is another form of uh, not getting what one likes. And similarly, um, in all beings that are subject to grief, lamentation, pain, depression, and loss, there arises the wish. May we never experience those things. But again, it's not a matter of wishing for it or hoping for it to happen. Um, Because if it's going to happen, the person is going to experience it because they were born. We were born. And what because is really uh, is meant by, in other words, all that the five grabbing aggregates try to latch onto is suffering. This refers to the grabbing aggregate in relation to tangible forms, the grabbing aggregate in relation to feelings, the grabbing aggregate in relation to memories and thoughts, the grabbing aggregate in relation to habitual tendencies, and the grabbing aggregate in relation to sense awareness. This is what is meant by, in other words, all that the five grabbing aggregates try to latch onto is suffering. This because is called the noble truth of suffering. Exposition on the truth of the cause and origin of suffering. Now we get to the second noble truth. Excuse me, Samudaya. And what because is the noble truth of the cause and origin of suffering? It is this ongoing thirst that leads to repeated rebirth while seeking constant excitement and enjoyment, finding delight here and there, that is to say, constantly thirsty for sensual pleasures, constantly thirsty for re-becoming, and constantly thirsty for non-becoming. And where, because does the arising of this constant thirst originate? And when settling and coming to a rest, where does it settle? It is in the world of the enjoyable, whatever is delightful and alluring this is where the constant thirst arises and originates from that is where it settles and comes to rest and what is it that is delightful and alluring in the world it is the eye that is delightful and alluring in the world that is where this constant thirst arises and originates from that is where it settles and comes to rest If you want to put an end to rebirth, put an eye on the eye, meaning watch your relationship to forms that are visible. Observe the eye and see how things that are enjoyable are always being sought after by the mind, by the heart. To know that is seeing, where the problem starts from. And by seeing of it, as it says in Sona Sutta, I mentioned briefly earlier, you also are releasing yourself from that attachment. And similarly with the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind, whatever it is delightful and alluring, that is where the constant thirst arises and originates from, Lord Buddha says. And he goes with the, so that was the uh, internal. um, And now we go to the external, meaning the objects of these six senses. Visible objects, audible sounds, odors, tastes, tactile objects, and mental states. What is your relationship to this thing that is uh, being read? The news, or... Something that is, uh, well, we use the word intriguing. I like to read this book, this kind of books. Why? What is going on when you are reading that kind of books? Well, because it's alluring to the mind. Alluring, attractive, delightful. That is where dukkha originates from. That is samudaya. The Four Noble Truths are not in a book somewhere out there, somewhere where you go and you have to meditate on a retreat, 10-day, 10-year retreat, whatever, to find them there. They're happening in every millisecond of your life. Just look at all these internal and external bases of the six senses. And then Lord Buddha talks about the sense awareness, the thing that joins these two, which we always ignore, by the way meaning the consciousness or the sense awareness. So Lord Buddha covers here, the eye sense awareness is delightful and alluring in the world. That is where this constant thirst arises and originates from. That is where it settles and comes to rest. The ear sense awareness, the nose sense awareness, the tongue sense awareness, the body sense awareness, the mind sense awareness is delightful and alluring. And similarly, um he goes into the sensory contact. So now we're getting to the next phase of what happens after the consciousness point. If you follow with the paticca samuppada, 12 links of causal relations, now you see, oh, we're now on the uh, passa level. Okay, we're in the contact. So sensory contact made with the eye is delightful and alluring in the world. Similarly, sensory contact related with the ears, the nose, The tongue, the body, and the mind is delightful. Please pay attention to the contact. The contact is where it all happens. Bhantanyananda uses the beautiful example of being in a table tennis match. And uh, he was excellent, he was superb in offering similes and metaphors and uh, this metaphor the table tennis he says well imagine your opponent is the very skilled Mara, serving you with his racket this tiny little ping pong ball and he's going to serve you and he's going to throw it at you at great speed that's the contact by the way the ping pong ball coming to your direction to your side of the table and he's in his metaphor he says It's going to hit or go over the short net on the table tennis table, (laughs) but don't let it bounce, he says. The moment we let the ball or the contact bounce, that means we are now treading into concepts and mental proliferations, papanchas. So if we capture contact right when it is served, quote unquote, by Mara, and we hit it back, guess what? We didn't lose. We might even have won. And we, the more do we, we do this, the more we become accustomed to it, and we definitely are winning because the sati or yoniso sikara is constantly present there. So contact is not just a point on the paticcia samupada uh, spectrum. It is very, very... Uh, we have uh, tremendous... Uh, role to play in its uh, in bringing value to it and and also finding even the way to nibbana through it through contact because I see often many people downplaying its importance and that is unhealthy if not just well unwise Uh, So, uh, next is uh, sannyas, Lord Buddha talks about memories and mental associations that are delightful and alluring in the world. And um, mental associations pertaining to uh, sites, mental associations or sannyas relating with sounds. Uh, Similarly with, uh, this is where we take the memories and we really unravel them. And we become fooled. I some months ago I mentioned about the magician who says uh, uh, chants these uh, mantras or spells to this pile of uh, bones that belong to a dead tiger. Um, Then the bones come alive, and now the tiger is alive and guess what the tiger does devours this sorcerer magician or whatever. The bones are listed here as sannyas towards the smell, sannyas towards anything that is visible, sounds, body, mental thoughts, etc. We love to breathe life to them so that it can take us away. They can take us away from this moment um, into oblivion, into unwise attention. And there's never going to be any waking happen, any happening there, release, or liberation, or nibbana. Why? Because we are following the way of avijja, which goes contrary to the dhamma. And Satipatthana is all about the dhamma, as you see. So this is the Lord Buddha's way to show us the inside scoop, giving us the the way the tricks that the mind plays so this is the backdoor secret codes of how to find how to tackle the mind and pull it out from its own hangups and avidya, delusion and ignorance and bring it to the light of vidya, which is wisdom panya but every millisecond of your living experience has so many access codes already provided to you with this. So that's why I uh, really encourage us to go over this sutta again and again. You don't have to read the whole thing in one shot. Pick one area and that's enough. It's so saturated with Dhamma. Next is the pursuit after visible objects is delightful and alluring in the world. This uh, is uh, interesting, I'm sure all of us experienced. When we want something, uh, um, uh, you, you see this in couples or uh, in people who are pursuing uh, other people and they, quote, uh, you know, quote unquote get the other person, or it could be objects like I want to get this and they work a lifetime to get it and once they get it. Hmm, where's the delight it, it loses its efficacy its power it's, its intensity. And now they want to pursue someone else or something else. Well, this is already being highlighted by the Buddha as the pursuit after visible and all the other uh, ways, whether it's uh, auditory, tactile, etc., are delightful and alluring in the world. That, That is where the constant thirst arises and originates from, Lord Buddha says. That is where it settles. That is where it comes to rest. That is where you find yourself gratified but it doesn't last because there's no satisfaction and that's why we call it dukkha another word for dukkha in english is unsatisfactoriness or dissatisfaction why because we want to continuously pursue until we croak and die and in the person before dying if you reach over and ask them hey do you want to come back? If you had another healthy body, would you want it? And they, their eyes will just open up wide. It's like, yeah, yeah. Well, that person hasn't learned anything. Well, that's us. That's why we're still here. Again and again and again. Craving after visible objects. So the pursuit, then we crave that. There's tanha there. Pono bhavika tanha. Tanha pono bhavika it's called. And that goes throughout all these uh, six. And then thinking about visible objects. Thinking about. So now we're talking about vitakka. Yes, you know, you, you the person goes to the teacher and says, yeah, but I think about liberation, or I thinking, I'm thinking about the jhana. How come I'm not there? I'm not experiencing what I already went through. I experienced. How come it's not happening? You're too fixated. You're You're worshipping that jhana. And then we get to the pondering, which is vichara. Vitakka and vichara. Vitakka, vichara. Over, uh, in this case, pondering over visible objects is delightful and alluring in the world. That is where this constant thirst arises and originates from. That is where it settles and comes to rest. And this is why many of us are lost in concepts and our thoughts and our own narratives even how we interpret the Dhamma. That's why a good teacher is going to come and pull the rug from under you if they see that that is what is taking place, where you are worshipping your thoughts and concepts, where you're always engaged in the Dhamma, studying it, pondering it, but nothing else. Because when you look underneath it, there is the desire to know something more than others, which means that there is conceit. There's a lot of comparison, so it's not pure Dhamma that is at the crux of it. That's why we need to check our attitude always. Um, Otherwise, it's just unquenchable uh, um, uh, thirst, Um, unquenchable thirst for the person. And they're always looking for maybe, maybe I read this. Maybe if I read this other word, maybe that will be the trick to get to Nibbana to become a sotapanna, you're missing the whole boat. You're missing it completely because you are caught in this rat race of uh, appeasing yourself by adding more of something, more. And that engagement with it is the vitakka vichara, in this case, v- vichara. And uh, Lord Lord says, this is the noble truth of the cause and origin of suffering. Now we get to the Nirodha, which is the third noble truth, uh, which is the cessation of suffering. Now you take all that we covered in this second second portion of the Satchas. And Lord Buddha says, the dropping of these, creating dispassion, having the, the giving up attitude towards them, is itself Nirodha. Just like I was saying observing something the beginning of something as about to happen itself is the key for the release from it same thing is applied here. Uh, I'll just read the first portion so we can uh, jump to the next one, because it's a repetition, however, not exactly because it is addressing the giving up versus being lost in the delight so. And what, because, is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering? It is the remainderless, the dispassion, the cessation, the giving up, the relinquishment, the release and abandoning of that very constant thirst for sensual pleasures, the constant thirst for re-becoming, and the constant thirst for non-becoming. Um, by the way, just the, the, those three, I didn't mention it earlier, One is for uh, 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 well the kama chanda, basically the sensual lust that we have, uh, and then the to become, and that is often described as being uh, wanting to be reborn into uh, higher realms or in better situations, finding yourself in better situations. Uh, But typically, they use it in reference to the deva realms, and the last one is uh, the desire to non-become. It's like getting to the point of oblivion or just extinct, becoming extinguished. But it has still ignorance in it for as long as they're being described in this manner. The person is seeking an end to it all. Uh, and uh, you see this a lot with people who are Uh, atheists or even like secular Buddhists you know I've heard some of them Um, but when you listen to the tone of what it is that they're saying the feeling tone in it you see that there's this desire to not become anymore and that's a form of escape in all of these cases all three are forms of escape and escape not while using wisdom Of course, crossing the flood with this raft to the other shore is also a form of escaping the fire and all that. Ignorance and, you know, there's so many similes. But they need to be anchored upon wisdom. We need to understand why I'm doing this. And your eyes are wide open. You're not closing your eyes at anything. You're completely present, even to the point of knowing the non-becoming. This also is when the person becomes a sotapanna or sakadagami, then it becomes really deplorable for them to exist uh, in this body, sometimes, given their circumstances. So then they have this desire to not become also. You see that as well in those noble disciples. So Lord Buddha is also warning us about them uh, and saying, no, you have to be wise enough to see it. Um, So... Sati is always there (laughs) and when because this constant thirst is abandoned where is it abandoned and relinquished and when ceasing where does it cease it is in the world of the enjoyable where whatever that is delightful and alluring is given up and abandoned this is where the constant thirst dies out that is where while ceasing it ceases and what is it that is delightful and alluring in the world It is the eye that is delightful and alluring in the world. That is where this constant thirst is abandoned and relinquished, where it dies out. So at the point of contact with the world, with the forms, with the visible forms, with the eye, because you're present, if you see it right then and there, it ceases. It ceases. So, Niroda is not somewhere out there in the future. We can experience these mini Nibbanas, the releases, or Nirodas, in every single experience that we have with the six senses. If you hear something that's deplorable, that's intolerable, see it right there. See how it arose. That seeing gives you true liberty. Because it comes with the control that you have now established on the mind more and more and more you're developing that more and more, and that is exactly where dukkha ceases, which is the third noble truth. So, and this goes on through all the series as. um, The previous one, except, as we saw it is addressing the abandoning and the relinquishment. Of the delightful and pursuing the whatever is alluring in the world, and that is where it ceases completely. One after the other, until it becomes a habit, and then um, they don't arise again. And uh, this is a long section, uh, but um, I just gave you the gist of it. And then we get to the magga portion, the exposition on the truth of the path, which is the fourth of a fourth truth of the Four Noble Truths, which is the Noble Eightfold Path, which is also another word for the middle path. So, um, and what because is the Noble Truth of the Path of the Practice that leads to the cessation of suffering? It is just this Noble Eightfold Path, that is, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right stability of mind. And what bhikkhus is right view? It is the understanding of suffering. It is the understanding of the cause and origin of suffering. It is the understanding of the cessation of suffering. And it is the understanding of the path of practice that leads to the cessation of suffering. This bhikkhus is what is called right view. And as far as right intention, It is none other than having the intention to renounce. It is having the intention to hold back and avoid having ill will or aversion. It is having the intention not to harm. This, bhikkhus, is what is called right intention. When we say renounce, that doesn't mean renouncing the lay life, necessarily. Uh, But he was addressing here bhikkhus. So you have many bhikkhus there who are still in their mind caught up in the lay life and the luxuries and whatever they had so that might have been uh, uh, a purpose but we can use this as a way for us to renounce our attachment to things our our positions uh, that we staunchly hold on to which oftentimes are based on ignorance um, or ill will if you remember from the Pachalaya Sutta where Lord Buddha gave the succinct brief instruction to Venerable Mahamoggallana before he became an Arahan. He said, Nothing, nothing is worthy to be clung to. Nothing deserves to be held on to. So there you go. Renouncing. And what because is right speech? It's holding back from speaking falsehood holding back from harsh speech i I didn't use the word abstaining because abstaining again to me gives a passive tone has a passive tone to it but holding back is a little bit more actively engaged the person is owning up and saying no i'm holding myself back restraining myself from because when you're about to say something It feels like you're holding back like stallions, 10 stallions trying to pull you, and you're just one person holding on to their reins and straps. That's how it feels sometimes, and we need to be very resolute there to not break the precept. Holding back from harsh gossiping and divisive speech, holding back from vulgar or angry speech, and holding back from useless or frivolous speech. This is what is called right speech, right action. It is holding back from killing or harming living beings, holding back from taking what is not freely given, holding back from engaging in sexual intercourse. Again, this is for bhikkhus, uh, but for lay people, uh, it uh, is holding back from engaging in sexual misconduct. For bhikkhus, it is completely sexual intercourse out of the question. You do that, guess what? You will never be a bhikkhu in this life. You disrobed yourself. It's a defeat. Uh, This because is what is called right action. What is right livelihood? It is when the noble disciple gives up pursuing the wrong livelihood and instead supports himself by the correct and noble means of living. This because is what is called the right livelihood. Even as because we have a livelihood, although some people say we, we don't have a livelihood, we absolutely do. Using your status, your position to extract funds and money and food and prestige and whatever your heart desires is wrong livelihood. When you're a bhikkhu or a bhikkhuni. Uh, promoting yourself, uh, self-aggrandizement and things like that, putting yourself before the dhamma um, is a wrong livelihood. You had this uh, and plenty of examples of this in the suttas, in the vinaya and you have especially plenty of it today all around the world. Um, So uh, yeah, keep your eyes open to this. Oh, lay people, (laughs) remember the Vimansaka Sutta. Everyone is supposed to be scrutinized, um, including the teachers, especially actually. And what bhikkhus is right effort? Here, bhikkhus, the bhikkhu generates within himself the exceptional fervency so to not let any evil and unwholesome qualities arise in him. To this end, he ardently strives, puts forth dedicated effort, zeal, determination, and unremitting energy so that evil and unwholesome qualities do not arise in him. Um, and uh, the bhikkhu generates within himself the exceptional fervency to obliterate any uh, evil states that have already arisen in him and the third phase of right effort is uh, he generates within himself the exceptional fervency so that good and wholesome qualities arise in him um, and uh, the, finally the, he uh, generates the fervency so that good and wholesome qualities that have already arisen in him continue growing um, this is right effort he says and right, what is right mindfulness? Here, bhikkhus, the bhikkhu, being keenly aware, meditates while carefully staying with the body being experienced, striving ardently as he ignores any possible leaning to desire something or resist anything in relation to the world. The bhikkhu, being keenly aware, meditates while carefully staying with the feelings being experienced. So this is a subdivision of the satipatthana. So here we're getting the satipatthana within a small grouping a subsection of the satipatthana itself so this is lord buddha's way the way i understand it of uh, reminding uh because it's a long dhamma discourse as you all know by the way lord buddha gave it in one shot in one sitting <laughs> we're doing it in three weeks <laughs> so um So, uh, feelings as being experienced as he ignores any possible leaning to desire something or resist anything in relation to the world. Similarly, the bhikkhu being keenly aware meditates while carefully staying with the citta, being experienced, striving ardently as he ignores any possible leaning to desire something or resist anything in relation to the world. Similarly, The bhikkhu, being keenly aware, meditates while carefully staying with the phenomena and their relationships being experienced, striving ardently as he ignores any possible leaning to desire something or resist anything. So there isn't tanha and there isn't aversion. There isn't loba, there is no dosa. You're fully present, you're not being fixated on anything, you're just seeing things as they are, as they're occurring. That is right mindfulness. There's no agendas, basically. And what bhikkhu's is right stability of mind? Here bhikkhu's, while living secluded from sensual pleasures and pulled inwards from all manners of evil and unwholesome states, bhikkhu enters upon and abides in the first jhana, and so on and so forth until the fourth jhana. Further, by giving up both pleasure, um, that's the fourth one, uh, pleasure and pain, having already gone beyond joy and anguish, he abides in the state of purifying mindfulness with an ever-present sense of equanimity as he attains to the fourth jhana, while experiencing neither pleasure or pain, having now gone beyond them. This, bhikkhus, is called the right stability of mind. And this bhikkhus is the noble truth of the path and practice that leads to the cessation of suffering. And the benefits of practicing the satipatthana, which is the conclusion, now, bhikkhus, if any one of you would develop these four establishments of mindfulness for seven vasas, vasa is a rains retreat, which is approximately three months uh, that bhikkhus uh, um, live in one place. Um, and that is how we know the age. So it's, it counts as a year. Each vasa counts as a year since being or highly uh, having received the high ordination of be, being a bhikkhu becoming a bhikkhu. So uh, if a person practices this for uh, seven vasas, Lord Buddha says, one of two fruits can be expected for you. Either full release through perfect understanding right here and now, or if there still may be residues remaining in you, then the the state of non-returner is attained. Not bad. Either becoming an arahant or being uh, an anagami, never to return to any state of being other than being reborn in the pure abodes, specifically for anagamis, let alone seven years, because and the same formula repeats, so I won't be repeating that, but I will just read the heading and the time factor involved, and the hope that Lord Buddha is giving us, <laughs> and, and this is what many us, uh, many of us meditators really want to hear, Um, let alone seven years, because let alone five, let alone uh, four years, let alone three years, let alone two uh, or one year, let alone seven months, let alone six months, let alone five months, four months, three months, two months, one month, half a month, because if any of you would develop these four establishments of mindfulness, even for a single week, single week, one of two fruits can be expected for you: either full release through perfect understanding right here and now, or if there still may be residues remaining in you, then the state of non-returner is attained. This, because therefore, is the path that is direct, that leads to the purification of beings to overcome sadness and lamentation, to leave behind pain and mental anguish, and thus to end the cycles of suffering by the realization of Nibbana, all through the means of these four establishments of mindfulness, Satipatthana. Thus, whatever has been spoken was spoken based upon what was said. That is what the Blessed One said. Fully contented, the bhikkhus were delighted in listening to the Blessed One's words. Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu. What a wonderful sutta. I uh, will pause and uh, hopefully some of you might have some questions and comments, uh, again, pertaining to the dhamma and pertaining to the practice and uh, especially if you have towards the sutta, would be great. Again, uh, I, I, it was my intention to go um, speeding through the sutta, if I sound like I did, uh, my apologies. If anyone is raising their hand, I can't see, by the way. Just FYI don't feel compelled like you have to ask or something, you don't have to because it's it's a wondrous sutta and we need to absorb it it's not a bad idea to sit after this or do some walking meditation first to get some blood rushing through your body and then after the session is over today. If you have the time to go ahead, at least sit maybe five, 10 minutes to just let it sink in.
1: Bronte, thank you for your call. Um, I have one question that isn't exactly related to this, although it came up in here when we were talking about the world is um, seeing the world through our senses and the whole world is in our fathom long body. The Buddha states in, I think more than one sutta. Hmm. But then when we're also learning about meditation, we're seeing that um, we learn in the jhanas in the unbounded space to seeing that space is infinite. And we also see that consciousness is infinite or consciousness is unbounded. And that seems to be a little bit of a contradiction to me that the whole world exists in this fathom fathom long body and also that space and consciousness are infinite. Can you just talk on that a little bit to tie those two together for me and maybe see where, what I'm looking at when I see it one way and what I'm looking at when I see it the other way.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, I like to use examples from our day-to-day lives things that are very unquestionably relatable Um, let's say when you buy some groceries and you're about to uh, chop some vegetables and you put it or or you have rice and you're cooking boiling some rice and uh, and you put it over the fire and it's it's boiling it's cooking and uh, let's say it's a stovetop and it's got gas, so it's going on and on. The fire is absolutely necessary for it to cook, to boil, to simmer, etc, similarly with the other ingredients. But you know you have a, a, a each of those aspects, each of those things that you were doing engaged in the, in the pro main process of the whole thing, the scheme of it. It has its own value, it has its own place. Similarly, you know very well where, when the time comes for you to lower the heat or completely turn it off turn it off and cover up with the lid and put away the bowl of rice aside so that whatever moisture or vapor is left, it could really get absorbed inside every single grain of rice so it doesn't stay raw or, you know, undigestible. Um, to be turned into cooked rice. I see the jhanas, especially with the fifth and sixth jhanas in this case, with uh, the, the infinity of space and consciousness as you pointed, as ways for the mind to settle deeper and deeper and deeper into states of tranquility and oftentimes unprecedented for that mind or if they've experienced it in the past, it actually Really, they, they get more situated in it and become more acclimated to it because what is to come after that? You're preparing the mind. It's a way station of rest. rest. Now, you don't have to go through those jhanas, of course, to experience Nibbana. However, they're nice to have because they can be a more of a speeding up of the process entire. Now, coming back to the stovetop, it would be wise of you to turn off the heat because you're going to have food that is edible. Otherwise, you're going to have, if you keep the fire still going, sooner or later, the fire department is going to be called in or the whole house is going to burn. So looking at this as a a set of ingredients that need wisdom to be with them, meaning our wisdom has to be there in conjunction with, let's say, the cooking or uh, in my using my metaphor there. It has its place, but how much and how long? That is the key. I know individuals who get stuck on the jhanas and who have been stuck. They've even called it, why oh, I've, I've reached the niroda Samapatti, Sanya Veda Eta Nirodha Sanya Samapatti, which is cessation of feeling and basically they're right there on the customer. they're they're experiencing nibbana and they're like yeah yeah, i'm I'm." no has nothing to do with that it's the person is locked up but um, lord buddha didn't say that these things contradict each other either and i don't see them as contradictions at all Uh, unless we make we turn them into of course so in this case that's why i mentioned uh Uh, that the Satipatthana don't go against any of the jhanas. Like, when you have the seven factors of awakening, you're specifically, you can automatically think of, okay, they're also talking about the jhanas then, immediately, if none of the other aspects of the Satipatthana were, but because of the presence of the seven factors of awakening, we know they're talking also about the jhanas being included here. Why? Because they are notorious, I mean, they're so important, rather, for the bringing forth of the samatha, that calmness of the mind. Now remember there were and are Arahants who attain uh, Nibbana and they're called uh, two ways. Those are rare, but they do happen, which means they, uh, they are the practitioners who have mastered or have at least gone through all the jhanas including the ninth which is often not considered the ninth by the way many people also consider only four jhanas to be there and the other four being aspects of the fourth which is the um when you're experiencing different le- levels of upekka so there are different permutations whether it's the infinity of space uh consciousness nothingness um and uh either perception or non-perception. And then they speak of of the cessation of feeling and perception. But you have those arahants who uh, achieve it through that, but also achieve it through (laughs) Vipassana practice. So they have it in both ways. And you have those that achieve it just pure through uh, Vipassana as well. And... um, and uh, so the Vipassana is the quicker path. But it's more difficult. Now in the case of Venerable Sariputta, he did have them both ways. And as well as Venerable Mahamoggallana, he had them both ways. But he never emphasized the importance of the, the, the jhanas. Although we have the Anupada Sutta, which is Majjhima Nikaya number 111 where it shows clearly as Venerable Sariputta is going through every single one of the jhanas. And he's aware through most of them as he's going through them, except for the the sixth and the seventh. So, um, by the way, I want to jump in and uh, and ask you, uh, how do you feel? Am I addressing your question or am I?
1: I think my question was coming from a place of me considering who am I? And I know about Anatta and we don't exist, but still, we don't, there's not self, not all, we don't exist. Uh, So it's, there's the picture, it's always ongoing in my mind and developing and building as I learn things about what I truly am, or if there is a truly I, whatever. Um, And so the contradiction comes from, I can't, I can't exist as the perceptions and consciousness and formations that my five aggregate five aggregates produce. And that's in the fathom long body that, and I see there's something else that there must be because space is unbounded and consciousness is unbounded. There's no limits and things there. there, Since I haven't experienced unbounded consciousness yet, I don't know what it is I'm going to understand and comprehend when I get there, Um, but it it, it still seems a contradiction, and and so what you've explained today hasn't removed that contradiction. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: Can you feel the laughter? Can you feel right now your cheeks, your face? Okay. Do you feel the residue of that emotion that just generated, was generated in you? Yes. Can you feel if there's any feelings left?
1: Residual. Because of that. It's more of a joy, I guess.
0: It's more of a joy. And right now you're utilizing probably your memories of it. Mm -hmm. Because at that moment you were feeling it, you were in it. And
1: we're extending i'm extending it yes it's a a pleasant feeling and so it's one we want to remain and and it's wholesome so we want to encourage it mm-hmm.
0: but when are you experiencing that in now the
1: future to mm-hmm. now now mm-hmm.
0: when we get lost law- if you notice i said a few times earlier today how we what we see what we hear lord buddha saying across the centuries through the satipatthana is leave concepts out of the equation leave theories out of the equation so all those things that you've said about the jhanas the infinity of space the infinity or whatever i said also about venerable satiputta, all these things are concepts things are that are not related With you right now holding on to your elbows, feeling the warmth of your forearms, for example, or how the back of your chair, your your back feels against the chair. Or how your glasses feel as they're resting on your face. That has more Dhamma than any of the Jhanas that we might talk about today. Satipatthana is all about the living experience. You might have heard me say so many times how Nibbana could be entered into at any point, any moment, any millisecond, despite how insignificant it might seem, how superficial it might be. I mean, that's how you had so many people at the time of Lord Buddha doing regular things and all of a sudden they, they, they actually become a Sotapanna or even higher. So they, most of them had not even heard about jhanas. So where does this, where does this take us to? Like, what is then a, a major problem here? What we are bringing to the table. Please don't bring anything to the table. <laughs> okay? In fact, don't even have a table. How's that? Because if we have a table, that means it's going to collect dust. And we're going to have some things to be playing around with. And uh, and it's it's such an impediment, it's such a hindrance. It holds us back. It holds us back. Lord Buddha was the first person ever to talk about using the body in such a pragmatic way that it's so like undebatable. No one can debate the fact that we're breathing or that I've never seen uh, both as a meditation teacher as a practitioner but especially as a, a, a psychotherapist whenever I've given them the, just sometimes in the beginning of the session sometimes somebody comes in or in crisis cases uh, you see them all over the place And they think that it's the end of their world, this and that, or something was lost in their lives, significant. I briefly listen and I connect with them using my voice, my body language, everything to make them feel at, well, being in a safe place. But immediately after that, I have them in some way or the other reconnect them to the breath. Just a few. And every hundred percent of the time hundred percent of the guaranteed as the person is connecting even to one or two inhales just sometimes even one could do the job you see the facial muscles relaxing. I mean it's miraculous observing the hell that this person was in suddenly. they're finding such peace. I don't care about the jhanas. I care about this level of clarity that it was reached for this person. And as the person sits there for a few more minutes, and then they return back and I say, okay, how was that, et cetera. And on a scale from one to 10, 10 being extremely anxious or depressed or whatever, and zero being none, they would say, I was at 11. And how about now? They they smiling and they're like, they take a moment. They're like, I'm probably at a two. What happened? The person came back to the living experience. Satipatthana is up about the living experience. When you are watching the well when when we did the uh, sati and sampajanya the mindfulness and clear comprehension of the body knowing where you are situated how the body is in whatever shape it is when you're let's say you're doing the chankama walking meditation oftentimes this is a challenge for many meditators because it's totally uh, more difficult okay than sitting meditation if you're a beginner because in sitting, there's less distractions. Your eyes, for one, usually are closed. There's no movement happening, and you're in one place. But when you're walking, you're walking in time and space. And you're seeing things. And there's so many steps. And then you're hearing the teachings come into mind. As like Bante said, when you're lifting, you need to know the heel is lifted. When you're lifting and going into the, and the landing, I was like, okay. So a lot of technical stuff, a lot of left brain activity, which throws us out of meditation. But the more relaxed the person becomes, the more trusting of the process, because you've been walking all your life. Just bring a drop of sati into every single walk or every single pace. Can you do that? Forget about all the teachings about the walking. And slowly, slowly, that drop expands. And creates this space around you. And you are now present. Now, another reason why, having said that, the pragmatic aspect of using the Satipatthana, using the present moment, because the tendency, and each of us has uh, our own hangups and sankharas to deal with, and meaning our, excuse me, intellect, intellectual um, trust that we have in the concepts. Some of us really uh, worship to that we take refuge in our concepts right Um, so that's one but a person who's fixated on the body let's say a person who only sees this is who i am this body the dimensionality of it is so the outline of it is so real for them for such a person as they're walking or going through the jhanas To reach uh, that state is a necessary step to demolish those outlines, to create those cracks in those uh, 3D solidity where patavi or the earth element is so fixed in their mind. So they can't see beyond their noses, if you will. So at that point, the jhanas, just like the heat that we were using to boil the rice, is useful to crack the egg. Because so far, so long as the chick has not cracked the egg from the inside, it won't hatch. You won't get a chicken or a duck or whatever come out. It will die, in fact, inside of it. So... There needs to be the, and that's a natural process. If the person is going through the jhanas, especially when they come to the fifth uh, and the sixth, there is a destruction of this, um, the obliteration of this three-dimensionality-ness of life and how they viewed themselves up to that point. Because the person now is forced to negotiate, oh, what is that? I'm feeling it. But because of the previous jhanas, they're able to settle. They have upekka. And sometimes they get kicked out. <laughs> it's like boom, 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 very quickly. They don't even know how they transition from the sixth to the fifth to the fifth, from the fifth to the fourth, et cetera. They suddenly, in the vitakka vichara, they're in thinking and pondering, What was that? That was nice. And now they squeeze, they push and push, try to go back to that. And then they bring it up in a conversation, in an interview. But what that was, if you will, uh, it was uh, the way for the Dhamma to, uh, and also your merits in the past, uh, to have unfolded in a way, now you have a glimpse. Oh, so this is not all it. There's more than this. Ah, because we are living in a finite understanding with our with thanks to our concepts and if we learned anything from the Satipatthana as we go over it it's not a matter of like who is this i am like i'm i'm i am i am what is this because you can easily substitute the i am with i am the five aggregates well okay so now the person is now holding on to the aggregates as i am i mean we didn't move that much but still it's it's maybe hopefully putting some cracks into that whole I am business, but the jhanas are there to support us to attain nibbana, that is the purpose uh, for them, the only purpose I see. Um, uh, Anything less than that is really uh, not worthy to write home about, you know, so I hope that helps.
1: Yes, much better, thank you. Mm
0: When the first stage of awakening happens, that whole idea is shakes the sakaya diti. Some people say, oh, some teachers I've heard say, oh, it's completely removed. That's not entirely true. Um, One time I heard a person describe it as the world keeps knocking but there's nobody to answer but how do you know it's knocking well there is awareness <laughs> there is there is understanding but there isn't a latching on to the grabbing isn't as strong a few i think a month ago or a few months ago we did the Sālpadi Sesa sutta the with uh, residues remaining that sutta and so long as we're alive we're going to have the five aggregates with us. They will come apart at the moment when we, as as Arahants, the person is no longer, uh, well, they're, they're breathing their last breath, basically. And that's where the glue, the very little faint glue that is left in them is completely come apart. And the Arahant drops their last body, and that's it. So, but until then, You will look at your body and you'll see, okay, then who is Greg then? Who who am I? Sometimes not every question deserves an answer. Some students don't like this at all, especially if they come from a certain intellectually uh, fortified world, you know, something that sustains them. Everything has to make conceptual sense uh, versus coming back to the body and feeling it, experiencing it. Because to me, that's much more real, what you said about there was some joy there, but it was already past. So now we were trying to remember using sanya. So the mindful aware, uh, aware person becomes aware of the efforting being put into place to use sanya to go into and look at the memories. And then what the average person, the putujana, does, is takes that memory and starts to regurgitate it and try to find enjoyment. And remember the alluring and delightful part that Lord Buddha was saying? That is what they're craving. They are trying to put, in some parts of the world, uh, in desert areas where there's, you know, there's not enough water, in Africa, in India, and in Rajasthan, and places, uh, one of the tricks that they do is they take a pebble, like a river rock or something like that, smooth on the edges, and they put it in their mouths, not to swallow or chew, but to just put it in the mouth. What that does is basically it creates the impression on the mind and the body to salivate more. And that salivation allows the person to feel moisture again, obviously, and they start gulping it down. So that is another way of looking at us regurgitating Memories, but the aware mind, the person who is practicing sati properly, they're never missing out on whatever experience that is taking place at that moment, at that moment, instead of being fooled into taking being taken on the ride, as it were, into papancha land because there's no end to it. But the fathom long body does have an end. that's why Lord Buddha said, Dhamma, Nibbana, everything is found within this fathom long body. and Because it's finite. So use it. Use the breath. Use the body. Like uh, I mentioned about uh, Chula Pantaka, the so-called dumb person, the bhikkhu. Not a single verse he could remember. Not a single word. Letter verse. Let alone reverse. But he rubbed his fingers against this white cloth handed to him by Lord Buddha very tangible, literally tactile perception, but so present and he was so on it because he nevertheless felt abandoned because they abandoned him. It wasn't like he was a piece of furniture. He felt being ignored, laughed at. But here the master gave him a personal instruction. He took time to come to him. Compassionately looked at him and handed him a piece of cloth and said, Pantaka, see if you can make this clear or clean, or uh, I forgot the Lord with those words exactly, but just rub them, see if you can make it cleaner, play with it, because when we're engaged with our concepts, what are we trying to do, we're trying to find a resolution. I don't know about you, but for 52 years, this brain of mine has always been trying to engage in concepts to find a solution to another problem that keeps coming up because of this so-called solution that I figured out, a concept, an abstraction, a this, a that, a Dhamma or a Dhamma principle. When I came to the Paticca Samuppada years ago, I was like, yes, I nailed it. I found the keys. <laughs> Good luck. It's not intellectual mumbo jumbo. It's not. It's the applicability of the Dhamma, which happens through even the tiniest little step of the Satipatthana. Can you pay attention to the sound that is coming to your ear? The air molecules that are bringing it to your ear, these vibrations, boom, 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 that started from the, let's say, the voice, the larynx of this animal or this person. Instead of saying, oh, I can't believe it. You insulted me. Yeah, but how do I know I was insulted? What happened before? What happened? There was contact. That's Mara serving me with the tennis, uh, table tennis racket. So the advice that Lord Buddha is giving here is to beat Mara at his game by being quick with our response time, meaning applying sati. At the moment of its arising. So the moment I hear the voice being addressed or just being released before I know it's addressed to me or at me. Am I aware? If I'm too lost in my concepts, guess what? I'm going to be regurgitating whatever I think I heard and then do a double take and then drop this concept that I was engaged in. And all of a sudden turn to the person and say, Did you call me that? Whoa. We are not even in the present moment, by the way. The awareness is lost. A smart person could even stop themselves if they're applying right effort. They stop themselves. Okay, what is happening? Oh, I'm feeling this agitation. Whoa, is that a good feeling or a bad feeling? It's a painful feeling. Okay. You're, You're still not allowing yourself to go in and lean into the aversive action. You're saying, oh, no, 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 this is it. This is, this is, this is it. It's encased in the iron walls of my mindfulness. I'm not going to allow this moment slip by. This There's some juiciness here. I need to make use of this experience. And that is when we are self-checking. And that's another way of saying, sati. You're not relinquishing the attention that is required to be given to everything that is happening. Every single thing that is happening. Where the mind becomes aware. Now, of course, we can't know everything. But one thing for sure is the loudest. Grab that. Look at that but without any agendas by simply asking what is happening be curious about it and then you don't have to uh, even you you won't even fall like uh, you know asleep while you're meditating or especially when you're engaged in life you're so present and that is what arahants are known for they are so present they never live in the past, they never live in the future. That doesn't mean that they don't have the ability to think and ponder when the situation calls for it, when it's necessary, when someone comes and asks, "Bante, uh, who's inviting you for a dinner uh, for, excuse me <laughs> for lunch tomorrow? The, tomorrow's Donna. Do you know whose home who invi- were you invited?" And they will know. but they were not living there in the past so it's very much like on a needed basis if it's if it's necessary but they are completely present when they touch when they wash their face when they're holding something when they're holding their robe in a certain way they are even aware of the position of the left pinky on their hand they're aware of how they're stepping with their right foot versus their left foot. So, this is not a mystical thing or, you know, esoteric or metaphysical, whatever. This is, And we can experiment with our own life. And that's what Lord Buddha is inviting us to do here. And that's where it drops from seven years to a single week. Single week. Wow. So, I invite you to, uh, I encourage you to take up the challenge and, and uh, do that. Um, uh, if there are no questions, um, further questions. Uh, oh, by the way, I wanted to uh, mention to you that next week I have um, decided to um, not, um, for the first time in over, I think almost two years, yeah, over two years that we've been doing our weekly retreats this week uh, we won't be doing the zoom meeting because I will be doing a personal retreat uh, for um, approximately two weeks and so however that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be doing your own sitting for next Saturday so I encourage you to do also your own two-hour Saturdays sit. Imagine that uh, if you want to have the computer open in front of you, do it. If that can, you know, helps the process. <laughs> um, otherwise, I really, really encourage you not to miss out. Uh, this is not like a classroom. Oh, the, <laughs> the so-called teacher is not going to be the class is canceled type of thing. No, it's not. It's never canceled. So, um, and then uh, we'll uh, resume the following uh, Saturday. So uh, I need, I I want to uh, um, dedicate these couple of weeks for my personal practice as well. And um, so that I hope also can be an encouragement to you for you as well on some level. so, but today happens to be a marathon, because this evening I will be doing the Armenia retreat, and then a few hours later at 1, no, 2, 2 a.m., I will be doing the retreat, and, and not a retreat, but the Dhamma sharing with uh, Malaysia. Um, so, yeah, um, it's, sometimes it can be overwhelming, and we need to remember that personal practice comes first, always. Um, Otherwise, we don't have a center. And uh, the practice is all about personal practice. That's called the patipada. So I encourage you to do your work. Uh, As Lord Buddha says, uh, This path is to be realized by the wise for themselves, by their own efforts. So no one's going to give us anything. Yes, the Dhamma is shared. Yes, the Dhamma is provided for you. Uh, But what do you do with it is up to you. There were many, many uh, dumb people around the Buddha who would even go to Dhamma talks. Nothing would happen. And there were people who only by accident showed up in passing and they stopped and listened and all of a sudden they became Sotapanna. So what we're doing, what's the attitude with which I'm coming to my cushion to sit when I'm reading, when I'm listening to a sutta? That is number one. Remember, there's five ways that a person becomes uh, experiences Nibbana, Lord Buddha says. And the first is through listening the Dhamma. Not hearing, listening. Listening to the Dhamma. Attentively. Trustingly. the second is through teaching the Dhamma. Third is through the repetition of something we had heard of the Dhamma, a verse. Let's say I just mentioned one from you know last few minutes uh, in, in Pali. you don't have to know the Pali by the way. this path is to be realized by the wise for themselves. Hmm. that might do it for someone. And then the uh, the fourth one is pondering those principles, thinking over what what did what did Lord Buddha mean by this? And then fifth, through the sitting practice of meditation. So you see most of it is done when we're off the cushion, so to speak. That tells you something of how valuable it is. So I spoke a lot, and uh, uh, thank you for indulging. And uh, please uh, practice, and uh, your whole life is practice. So let us share some merits.
1: Sorry, Sante, just a yes. mm-hmm. Just a message for people in U.S. states that have daylight saving. Ah, yes, daylight saving happens changes tonight so for when we meet again in two weeks time those of us with daylight saving it will appear as if the meeting is an hour later
0: ah yes yes thank you for bringing back to uh to our attention uh, I, I was actually going to ask damadina to also send out an email to everyone uh not just in the us uh because i, I sometimes get confused whether it's only the us other places it's confusing. So uh yes, please, as Greg said, be mindful of the time. Um, um and uh yeah, yeah. Okay. Share some merits. May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find health relief. May all beings share in these merits that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of wholesome happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power, share in these merits of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Uh, it's great to have done the Masatipatthana with you. And uh, I haven't decided whether to do the next time we meet a sutta or just a meditation retreat. But um, I'm leaning towards doing a sutta, and the, which would be the Indriya Bahavana sutta, a wonderful sutta. It's the very last of the Majjhima Nikaya suttas, the 152nd sutta. Beautiful sutta. I just retranslated and uh, and I'll ask Dhammadina to send it to you. Uh, so, uh, which which kind of adds another layer of uh, deliciousness to the Mahasati Pattana, if you will. we covered for three weeks so be well and may the blessings of the triple jam be with you all and your loved ones may you be safe and protected protection happens from here outward so please don't relinquish your sila and trust in your innate goodness because of it you will experience nibbana without it it won't happen remember so sukiho. to sukihoto